Amen. Thank you, Brother Micah, and thank you, Brother JB. It's good to be back with you, and I sure appreciate your heart and praying for your sister churches, and it is so important. You are blessed. You're so, so well-positioned with wonderful staff and those other leaders that come around them and here at the church, your deacons and committee folks, and uh, I've already gotten to know some of them and, and appreciate uh, how positioned you are during this interim, how important it is. But it is important to pray for our sister churches, uh, whether it be this association or wherever they may be, because we're all in partnership. That's how I felt in uh, the Otago Baptist Association. We were in partnership. We weren't in competition, and at least that was my attitude with, with others. In fact, many times I would visit folks, and I would uh, realize they, they might not be a good fit with us. They didn't feel comfortable, and they wanted to look for another church. And I'd find out, well, tell me what, what you're looking for. I would make sure they get recommended to another church. And I had pastors do the same thing to, uh, for, for our church. So we have that partnership. Understand, we want people where God wants them. And, and it may not be at, a, at the First Baptist or Elkdale or Northside, all the other churches that are in your community. God has a place for everyone. And so that's what we want. And I know that you want God's people here. You don't want people just sit and do nothing. You don't want people come one Sunday, join, and not show up again, do you? I, I never liked that. And I didn't like that for my, my brothers in Christ either with the other churches. We want people where God wants them so they can serve and grow and be discipled and reach out, minister, and share the good word of Jesus Christ. So I appreciate your heart. Thank you, men, for how you're leading uh, during these times. And again, good to be back with you and, and share with you. You see the title of the, of the sermon, Lifting Up. Uh, Christ Jesus, that, that is so important for, for us to do. From time to time, we just need to stop and just lift up Christ Jesus. Now, I'll tell you what my expectation is this morning. I feel like the little boy that went into the candy shop, and he, he was given uh, a lot of money to go in, and he went in, he bought um, all kinds of candy. He, he had the, the storekeeper to keep, put it all in this little bag. And then the storekeeper noticed when the little boy got outside with this bag of candy, he looked into the bag and he began to pray, Lord, make my tongue equal to the occasion. All right? And so that's kind of what I'm praying this morning. Lord, I want to lift up Christ Jesus. Make my tongue equal to that occasion of lifting up our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to lift up Christ. Let me tell you what. I'm, I'm afraid that uh, in, in, our, in our faith, that sometimes we can become a little complacent, uh, we can become a little, little tired maybe, and we lift up other things that are not near as important and, and, and lifting up Jesus Christ. Do you understand we're going to spend all eternity doing this? I mean, this is what heaven is all about. Folks, this is nothing more but a dress rehearsal. What we've been doing these last few minutes, praising the Lord and now sharing in our, in our Bible study this morning, all we're doing is getting ready for heaven. We're, we're rehearsing, and we ought to be at our best and do, do everything we can as we prepare our hearts. Revelation 4 and 5 speaks about this. The great, incarn, uh, great uh, coronation of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And so why not join in? Why not be a part of it? Why not get that excitement that we need here because that's the way it's going to be in glory. We get a head start. We get to practice on that today. And this morning, to, to help us in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, Paul brings about some very interesting words, beautiful words, some of the most important words that he wrote in all uh, of his 13 letters. Now, when you read it, you, you almost want to think, hey, this is, this is doctrine, this is, this is theology. But it was more than that. It actually is a, a Christological hymn. 
And Michael, I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I want to know the tune writer. I want to know the tune to these verses we're about to, about to look at here in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, why did Paul write these words? Why, why, did he, why did he take time to write this? Well, you have to look at the previous four verses, verses 1 through 4 in this chapter. And you'll understand that he was trying to address a couple of issues. Now, Philippians is the only one of Paul's letters where there is not a, not a rebuke, not an exhortation uh, against something that was happening in the church. But, but don't get me wrong and don't get Paul wrong. There were some issues as there are in every church. I mean, the best of churches. And Paul surely loved the church of Philippi. It was a church he greatly loved and had great joy for them. But they did have some issues. Chapter 3, there were some false teachers, and they were creating problems. In chapter 4, verse 2, uh, there were two ladies. They, they were scrapping each other in the, in the church. And Paul says, hey, let this mind be in you that, that was in our Lord. And so he had some issues that he had to deal with in the church, some relationship issues, some unity issues within the church, Paul said, we need to identify these. And in these first four verses, he begins to, to talk about it. Folks, you need to re be reminded as we talk this morning, our, our thinking determines how we treat other people. It really does. You need, you need to understand this. How you treat people is going to come about by the thinking, what your thoughts are, what your attitudes are. Listen to this passage or this quote from Janet um, uh, Canfield. She said, Our attitude toward the world around us depends upon what we are ourselves. If we are selfish, we will be suspicious of others. If we are of generous nature, we will likely be more trustful. If we are quite honest with ourselves, we won't always be anticipating deceit in others. If we are inclined to be fair, we won't feel that we are being cheated. In a sense, looking at the people around you is like looking in a mirror. It is a reflection of yourself. So when you're looking at people, your attitude is really a reflection of your mindset, of your attitude. This was true of Jesus. This was true of Jesus. Jesus had, had this wonderful attitude. If not, he could not have dealt with those reluctant disciples time and time again. Without the right kind of attitude, he could not have dealt with those Pharisees and Sadducees and all those religious leaders. He had to have patience. He had to have love and compassion and grace and restraint. He had to have the, kind of, uh, the right kind of attitudes in his life to be able to do and accomplish what he did in his life. Remember, he expressed all and felt all the emotions that you and I feel in our life. He felt them as well. And how was he able to accomplish what he did? He had the right kind of attitude. Listen, folks, when you look at Jesus, when you look at him, think about the, the, the most Christ-like attitude. Would you say the most Christ-like attitude is love and is patience or is grace? Well, let's listen to the words of Jesus himself and hear what he had to say. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. That, that phrase, those ideas can be summarized in one word. Jesus was unselfish. He was unselfish. He was always thinking about other people. He cared about other people's interests over his own interest. 
So Paul is picking up on that, and now your Bibles are turned to, to, to Philippians chapter 2. Let's just look briefly at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul says he wanted unity, and unity was having the same love, the same spirit, and the same mind. Now, folks, unity means you're cooperating together. We're not talking about uniformity. We're not talking about having the same personality and having the same attitude and, and ideas about things. No, God loves the diversity that he has in the body of Christ. He's not talking about all of us being uniform, always agreeing on every issue, but he is talking about cooperation. And that's why he refers over in chapter 4, verse 2, with those two ladies that were having issues in the church. There was nothing wrong with the disagreement. It was how they were sharing it and affecting each other. He says, if you want unity, then be unified in your spirit, in love, and in your mind. Now in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, or only your interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So here, Paul tells you how to have the same kind of love, the same kind of mind, the same kind of spirit. To care about each other. And so as he's explaining this in verse 1 through 4, kind of giving us a context to these words that we're going to start studying in, in verse 5. He says in verse 5 this. He says, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset or have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Now, we've already talked about the attitude of Jesus. Jesus had an attitude of unselfishness. He was gentle. He was humble. He was unselfish in his life. So Paul is saying, now you practice what Jesus did in his life. You do what Jesus did in life. Practice unselfishness. And so then he gives us maybe why we need to follow the example of Jesus. And he lists Five qualities, five aspects of our precious Lord. This is what we need to be lifting up about Christ Jesus today. First of all, let's look uh, at uh, uh, his preexistence in verse 6. Verse 6, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Here he goes back to eternity past. When Jesus was in heaven, John, the wonderful gospel writer, said this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. In the 17th chapter, He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And in chapter 8, in the same gospel, He says, Very truly I say unto you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Folks, Jesus has always been. Sometimes we get, we get the idea that Jesus just showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago. No, Jesus has been from the very beginning. He has always been there with God. He is co-equal with God. He has always been there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit. Jesus has 
always existed. And so in this verse, it's reminding us of his pre-existence when it says, being in the very nature, the very form of God, did not consider equality with God. In other words, Jesus didn't mind being equal with God because he had always been there. He was an equal part of the Trinity. Then he goes on to say in the last part, something to be used to his own advantage. So please note what, what Paul is trying to say here. Jesus did not take advantage of being the second person in the Trinity. He didn't take advantage of, of his status, of, of his state being equal with God. He never took advantage of it. He never played the sun card, so to speak, all right? Hey, I'm the son of God. He never did that. That phrase uh, in verse 6 where it says something to be used to his own advantage, our, our King James Version uses the word robbery. He, he didn't rob God of this aspect that of him being the co-equal within the Trinity. The phrase here, the word, is, is a word that's used for harpoon. Remember in the old days, the, the old uh, sailing ships, they would have harpoons. And those harpoon guns would send the harpoon out and, and would hit the fish, hit the animal, hit, hit the whale most of the time. And it grabbed the whale, it grabbed the fish, it snatched the fish. The whole idea here is that Jesus did not grab, he did not snatch. He, he did not lobby for his rights. And to continue on in glory and, and enjoy all the benefits of being the Son of God. He is talking about his pre-existence here. Paul talking about the pre-existence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus understood his place. And even though he was the coexistence with God, he didn't take advantage of it. He was willing to give himself and to, to show other people how important they were. Their interests were more important than his. Now these next verses give us the evidence, give us the proof of it. So we look at verse 7, part of verse 7. And we see his incarnation. Notice the first phrase of verse 6, or verse 7, and the last phrase of verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing... And the last part of verse 7, being made in human likeness. What we find here in Jesus uh, was the fact that uh, he, he made himself nothing, meaning he emptied himself. Now, we could spend probably the rest of the day talking about what that means. But basically, what it means to empty himself was he gave up all his rights and privileges. Last Sunday morning, we recognized 11 students. And on, uh, one of the things that has been said at their graduation, if they've, if they've already had their graduation or, or having their graduation, I know in Otago County their graduation is another week or so away, one of the things that will be said by the superintendent of schools or by the headmaster, uh, whoever it is that is going to get a, a board member, one of the things they're going to say is, we give you this diploma and you have all rights and privileges are now yours as a high school graduate. When I graduated from college, the same thing was said of the chairman of the trustees of the college I attended, a Baptist college down in West Palm Beach. You now are given the privilege, this diploma represents all the rights and privileges that are now accorded the fact and the degree that I graduated from. When I graduated from seminary uh, with a master's and later with a doctorate, the same thing was said 
by a member of the faculty or one of the board members. You now have all the rights and privileges accorded to this degree. And so that meant that, uh, and, and as for you as well, wh whatever uh, institution or school or whatever, wherever you have graduated from, you've got the same rights and privileges that are accorded based on that degree that you earn. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself. He gave up all those rights. He gave up all of those privileges, the scripture tells us. He did that all for us when he came down and he took on human flesh. Paul in that last part of verse 7 says, being made in human likeness. He became one of us, God in human skin. So we see the incarnation. It's what we celebrate every Christmas. It's why Christmas is so meaningful for us. Not just that a baby was born and, and was laid in a manger. It was the fact that God became man. He took on human skin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Look at how Paul describes it. Jesus was rich, but he became poor so that you and I can be rich. We'll speak about the second richness in a minute. But he was rich. He was in heaven. He had all the rights, all the privileges. He emptied himself, but he became one of us. He became poor. He became poor for your sake and my sake. He became poor. And thank God that he did it. He did it willingly. There was no reluctance in his life. He emptied himself, and he became one of us. Now, what does that mean when we say that he became one of us? He was a baby. He had to be fed. So his mother nursed him. He had dirty diapers. He had to be changed. He grew up. He was just like you and me. He became thirsty. He had to drink. He became hungry. He had to be fed. He got tired. He, he, he was exhausted walking the roads of Galilee. And so therefore, he had to rest. I mean, Jesus had to sleep. In heaven, he never had to sleep. But here on earth, he had to sleep. He had to get his rest. He also went through, just like all of us, temptations. Only he was without sin. He went through sorrow. There were times of discouragement. Yes, there were happy times. If I can encourage you in one thing today, there's a, a new series uh, of, of films that are out, a movie uh, that is called The Chosen. How many of you have heard of The Chosen? A number of you, thank you. The rest of you, I hope that you will take time to just download the app called The Chosen. And it is, season one had eight episodes. We're in season two. Fifth episode comes out tonight, 8 p.m. our time. And it is a wonderful depiction by Dallas Jenkins and a whole organization about Jesus taking us through the life of Jesus. It's one of the most realistic Jesuses I've ever seen. It's amazing. It is extremely biblical, true to God's word, but it fills in the gaps. How these disciples got along with each other and didn't get along with each other. 
And it was amazing, one of the episodes just a few weeks ago was, was Jesus, and he's healing all day, and the disciples are taking turns lining all the people up while he's, he's healing people and ministering to these people. And so at night, they're back at the campfire, and there's some arguments going on. Peter is on Matthew's case because he had been a tax collector, and a number of things. Mary, Jesus' mother, shows up, and they're listening to her stories about Jesus. And here they're squabbling, and they have just stood up, kind of angry at each other. And here comes walking Jesus, after ministering all day, exhausted, exhausted. They all stop, and they watch Jesus, and he just walks by, and he says, good night. And he goes right to his little area where he's going to sleep. His mother comes over and helps him get off his outer garment and then washes his feet. He lays down and he says the traditional Jewish prayer that a Jew would say each night before going to sleep. And it shows Jesus totally exhausted. We need to understand, Jesus became one of us and felt the joys, the highs, but the lows as well. Then we see something else about Jesus in verse 7 in the middle phrase, and that is his humiliation. Notice in verse 7, by taking the very nature of a servant. In verse 6 it says, in very nature of God, the form of God. Now it is the nature of a servant, the form of a servant. Jesus became a servant. To be in the form of God, only God can do that. To be in the form of man, only a man can do that. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was both. It's part of this incarnation experience. But in the incarnation, there is the humiliation where he became a servant. Notice in Matthew 20, verse 28, these words, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In John 13, we see him taking off his outer garment and he's washing the feet, a basin of full of water, washing the feet of the disciples. And then in Matthew 20, verse 26, it says, Whoever wants to be a great among you must be a servant. Do what I've done. Follow my example. Jesus was a servant. He chose to be a servant. He chose to become one of us and to give us a tremendous example. But understand, this word humiliation is not talking about shame. Jesus was not ashamed when we say his humiliation. We're not talking about shame. And we're not talking about doing a lowly job. I, hey, if whatever you do in your life, whatever work that you may do, there is no shame if it is honest work and hard work and you're earning money. There is no shame in that at all. And when we talk about humiliation as it's being used here, we're not talking about loathing yourself and criticizing yourself and feeling bad about yourself. No, it's talking about humility. It's just talking about being humble. The humiliation, the humbleness of Jesus of which we all are supposed to follow in our lives. Again, I point you to Philippians 4, 2, when you have Eurodia and Sintiche, and they're, they're, they've had a scrap with each other. And Paul reminds them, hey, we've worked together in ministry. Put that aside. Take on the spirit of the Lord. Be humble and continue to serve. Well, when you have the incarnation, you have the humiliation. What does it lead to? We see his obedience. Notice in verse 8 these words, And being formed in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was found in the appearance of a man, Jesus himself, just like you and me. When, when, when they saw him, when people saw him, hey, that's a man. So in the appearance of a man, verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's this obedience to death? It's because God says someone had to pay the price. Sin had to be paid for. All those centuries of animal sacrifices with Moses, all of those things that had been handed down, they never saved anyone from sin. They never forgave one sin. Those animal sacrifices did nothing except give a picture of what ultimately Jesus would do. Only Jesus' blood can forgive sin. Only his blood. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. Only his blood. Now the animal's sacrifice was just giving a picture of what was to come. And what saved them was their righteousness, was their faith, their believing and trusting in God and being obedient, even doing the animal sacrifices. But their sacrifices never forgave sin. Only the symbol of what Jesus was going to do. And God said, it takes Jesus' blood, death on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, remission of sins. And so here we see his willingness to be obedient. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I mean, again, he was submissive to God and paid the debt. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might have his righteousness. That's what Jesus did for us. So on the cross, the debt was paid. We see that it was through his obedience. Again, he wasn't reluctant. He wasn't, he did, you didn't have to drag him to the cross. He willingly went to the cross and died. Jim Henry was longtime pastor of First Baptist Orlando. Jim and I got to be friends because of a mutual friend that was in our church in the private community. And had him, had him to travel a couple of different times for ministry with our deacons and with our congregation. He grew up in Nashville. He tells a story about when he was uh, a teenager that there came a Sunday and his mother had grown up 30 miles outside of Nashville. And she was a member of the Hopewell Baptist Church. And on this one particular Sunday, they were all going out there. And they were going to have a celebration service. It was kind of like a homecoming. There was going to be dinner on the grounds, music, and, and they were having a guest speaker. Well, Jim Henry uh, convinced his parents just to let him hitchhike out there in those days when it was safe to hitchhike. And so he and his, one of his best friends, they're hitchhiking. They're standing in the road, and they got their thumb pointing out. And all of a sudden, this black limousine pulls up. And they're thinking, wow, wonder what this is. Well... A man got out, and he had on a trooper's hat, and they recognized it as a Tennessee state trooper, and they thought, oh, no, we're in trouble. We're going to be arrested for, for hitchhiking. And the trooper got out of the car and went over to him and said, hey, boys, uh, where are you headed? And they said, oh, we're, we're headed to church, to Hopewell Baptist Church. He said, well, we'll take you there. Hop in the back seat. And when the door was opened to the back seat, there was this distinguished-looking man with, with his suit on, and he said, hello, boys, my name is Frank 
Clemens. I'm the governor of the state of Tennessee. And so these boys got in, big eyes, bug eyes, they got in, and they got to ride the rest of the way to Hopewell Baptist Church with Frank Clemens, the, the governor of the state of Tennessee. And all the way out, Jim Henry was thinking, I just can't wait to get to the church. And when that door opens and I get out of the car and all my friends, my parents, my grandparents, people I know out here, my brother Joey, he's already out there. They're all going to be, you know, dumbfounded. They're going to be excited. And man, we're, we're going to be really hot stuff. We're really going to be special because we rode into Hopewell Baptist Church with the governor of Tennessee. And sure enough, when they arrived, it happened. Everybody was so excited, not just to see the governor, but they're talking to Jim and his friend. Y'all got to ride with the governor. How special. Later on in life, Jim Henry got to thinking about it. He said, you know, that was, was special for a teenage boy to ride in the car and be in his presence. But something more, more special is the day that I enter into eternity. And I come into the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that I've ever will have experienced in my life will compare to that moment of entering into heaven into the presence of Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life. The one who was obedient even unto death for my sin. And so having seen all of this, Think about it for just a moment. Think about it from God's point of view. Seeing his son pre-existent and having all the glory in heaven, all the benefits. Seeing his son who was incarnate, who gave up all the privileges, all the rights. Seeing his son in humiliation, meaning just to be humble and serving people. Seeing his son obedient even death unto the cross. This now makes more sense what we're about to read, thinking from God's point of view, verses 9, 10, and 11. Look with me. Therefore, meaning after all these other things I just explained to you, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Think about Jesus was welcomed back into glory. Jesus was welcomed by all the angels. He, he was welcomed by everyone, and Jesus was put in the highest place. Here he was in the lowest place, but Jesus was put in the highest place. God welcomed his son. God rewarded his son for being humble. He now caused him to be exalted. And notice in verse 9 it says, and gave him the name that is above every name. It doesn't tell us what the name is but I don't think it's too hard for us to figure that out. It's Lord. He gave him a name above all other names. Lord, there is no one that equals the status, comes close to doing what Jesus did in the place and the position and the authority that he had in the presence of God. He is Lord. And so we find here that, that Paul, as he's bringing this to our attention, and sharing with us this exaltation of how God rewarded him. And we're reminded of Luke 14, 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's true of you just as much as it is Jesus. 
If you serve Jesus as you ought to, if you empty yourself of your pride, if you too will become just a humble servant and willing, not unto death, because most likely never, none of us will ever be called to die in sacrifice, but we will sacrifice ourselves. If we will do those things, we're going to be exalted as well. Luke 14, 11 speaks that truth. We humble ourselves, we will be exalted. Here our Lord Jesus Christ did that. Humbled himself, obedient, self-denial. He didn't want to do what he wanted to do. He did what God wanted him to do. And God exalted him and gave him a name above all other names. In ancient times, it was characteristic to give a name that was to be determinative factor of a person's character. And here we find it for Jesus, Lord. Verse 10, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, showing respect, homage. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In heaven, all of our family that's already there, all your loved ones, all the believers. On earth, you and me. Under the earth, Satan, all the demonic forces, all the unbelievers, all of them, their knees will bow. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. When we look at this passage of Scripture, stop and think about that time is going to come. All of us will bow our knee. Now, for those of us Christians, we've already bowed our knees. We've already confessed. When we get to heaven, we will lovingly bow our knees and our tongues will confess. And those that are in hell right now and will be in hell, God's going to take his hand and he's going to ram on their necks and he's going to push them down to their knees. And their tongues will finally confess. It'll be too late, but they'll confess Christ Jesus is Lord. When Paul gave these words, think with me for a moment. He's sharing with people. Why, why would they want to continue on with their petty quarrels? Why would they want to continue on with their petty pride? Why would they, why would they want to continue having a, an attitude of unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment? Why would they want to do that when they understood that Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his humiliation, his obedience, his exaltation, they were to be lifting up Christ. Why would they want to continue those things? But more importantly, why would we want to continue that? Why would you want to continue your petty quarrels with each other? Why would you want to continue having a heart that lacks forgiveness? Why would you want to continue any resentment or bitterness toward other people when we have a Lord who gave so much for us? In Job, or excuse me, in Proverbs chapter 18, we read these words, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Those of you that maybe are Hallmark movie fans, you remember um, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered? Remember that episode, there's a woman, a military officer, that uh, has been separated and, and trying to get back to the troops. And if you remember that particular episode, this is the passage of Scripture that they used, Proverbs 
And while we're reminded as believers in Jesus Christ, while we run to the strong tower, we keep on running for that strength and our well-being with our Christ. But maybe there's somebody here without Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Would you not run to the strong tower, the only one that can save, the only one that can help you through your life, to get you into eternity, the one who died for your sin as he died for all of our sins. He comes today inviting you to give your life to him. Surrender your life to him. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we've, we've lifted up Jesus. We, we've talked about his preexistence and his incarnation, his humiliation, his, his obedience and his exaltation. We who are believers, we, we celebrate that. But if you're not a believer, let me tell you something. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was not a joyful experience. That's not what it's talking about there. When it says, For the joy set before him, it means he had joy in his heart that he could die for your sin. Think about it, our Lord Jesus Christ. The worst experience that could ever be happened, death on a Roman cross. He had joy set before him to accomplish salvation for you. Would you not say yes to Jesus? How do, you say, Pastor, how do you do that? By confessing that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from God. Believing and trusting that Jesus Christ is God's answer, Dying for your sin, you invite him to be your Savior and your Lord. Surrender your life to him. And then you confess him as Savior and Lord for your life. You do it through a prayer, a very simple prayer. Something very simple like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Jesus, enter to my life. Be my Savior and my Lord. I call upon you. I believe that you died on the cross. You were buried and rose again. I surrender my life. Help me to be the Christian you want me to be. Friend, those simple words, God knows your heart, just simple words, and begin the wonderful journey. And it is a beginning. It's not the end. It's just the beginning of this wonderful journey that we call the Christian life. Father, thank you for this time. We pray for anyone who needs to make a decision for our Savior, that they would not let this day go by, not another day. We're not promised that we'll have another day. Let it be today. So they might celebrate with us, lifting up Christ Jesus and all that he has done for us. Thank you for this wonderful church that will receive them, that would love them and help them to grow. And help them through the, the wonderful times, but also through the difficult times that we all face. May they not delay this decision, but may they come. And for us, fathers, Christians, may we once again praise you for our wonderful Savior and all that he had done for us. And we pray this in his strong name.